Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome to Explore. My name is Mike Osborne, and uh, we are beginning a new class today. Uh, we are beginning a new class this morning, and I'm glad that you chose to come out for it. It's called Apologetics 101, Defending Your Faith Without Starting an Argument. And I think for the next six to eight weeks, we're going to be dealing with how to answer skeptics and doubters. So the first thing I want to do is, before we go any further, I'd like you to take a minute at your table to introduce yourself. Make sure you know the people around you. If you're sitting by yourself, why not join someone else? Or if you're just a married couple and you're a married couple all by yourselves, why not join someone else? And, and here's your assignment. Besides introducing yourself to somebody, tell the people at your table, why are you in this class? What are you hoping to gain out of it? I mean, you made a decision to join us this morning. Why? All right, so go ahead and do that right now, and I'll tell you to stop in about two minutes. All right, everybody, I assume you uh, were able to share some things with those people around you, and we're going to go ahead and begin with prayer and dive right into our subject this morning, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the uh, joy it is to see one another again, to be in this place, and to worship you. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we had earlier today of having communion. And now as we gather in this place, we pray, Father, that you will guide us and lead us. And, Lord, use this class to shape our faith and to develop us as disciples of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it working, Mr. Brent? All right. Well, I was going to show you a movie clip this morning from one of my very favorite movies, The Matrix. But we're going to have to go without unless somebody here can solve our video problem by next week. So uh, we're going to go ahead and begin. Look at your outline, if you will, and uh, we're going to dive into our subject. Got a lot to try to cover today. This is going to be an introductory session. That's why I'm calling it on your outline, introductory stuff. That's a technical term for orientation. <laughs> okay. Um, First of all, we want to start with the question, what is apologetics? Let's hear a couple of answers from the crowd. What is it? Give us a definition, Fran. Good. It's a way to explain your belief. Reza. A way to defend your perspective or opinion. Exactly. I hope that when you saw the word being promoted, you weren't thinking, oh, great, I'm going to have to learn how to apologize to somebody. No, that is not what apologetics is. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thanks, Risa. Risa is uh, willing to give lessons on that. Um, no, apologetics is a word that actually comes from a Bible verse. And that Bible verse is 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. It's going to be on your screen, I believe, in a moment. Yes, Apologetics means explaining our faith to others. And look at it in this Bible verse right here. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. And that word answer is the Greek word apologia. Apologetics. It's the word from which we get apologetics. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, we're talking about when somebody comes to you and says, why are you a Christian? 
on what basis do you believe the Bible to be true? Why do you really believe that there's a heaven and a hell? You're always prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you those kinds of questions. And the verse goes on to say, but do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Exactly. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who maliciously speak against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So notice, guys, that apologetics is not only what you say, but what? How. That's right. It's how you say it. It's how you come across to people that is very, very important, and that's going to be part of this class. Now, I want to read that same passage of Scripture from a couple of other Bible translations just to give you a little feel for what 1 Peter 3, 15, and 16 are, are communicating. For example, have you ever heard of that new, it's fairly new, it's a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. A lot of, if you've never read that, if you don't own a copy of The Message, I would really recommend that you get one. It's a paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. And the way that he brings out the meanings of Bible words is very, very interesting. Like, this is what it says in the message. Same passage, different words. He says, Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your Master. And here's the good part. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. That's kind of cool, isn't it? He says, uh, be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. Um, the New Living Translation is a translation that I've begun using uh, in my daily Bible reading. It's really good. And here's what the New Living Translation says. Same passage. says, and if you are asked about your Christian hope, if you're asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But uh, you must do this, he says, in a gentle and respectful way. So all of those verses, uh, those translations, kind of bring out what we're getting at here, that we're going to talk in this class for the next six to eight weeks about giving an answer, giving a defense, being prepared to answer questions, particularly when they come from skeptical people, from doubters, from atheists, from agnostics, etc. Um, you're going to be giving them an answer about what you believe and why you believe it. And I do want to say one more thing about apologetics. What it is, is that we're going to be learning how to defend Christianity in particular, not just religion in general. We're not going to be talking about why you should believe in uh, intelligent design, period. Rather, we're going to use intelligent design to hopefully be a bridge to talk about Jesus Christ. So it's Christianity in particular that we're learning about here, not just religion in general. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit. I don't know if you brought a Bible with you, but it would probably be f helpful in future weeks if you bring your Bible or a Bible to represent you or your table, whatever, because we're going to look at some scriptures, and that's actually going to start right now. So I'm going to take you on a little tour. And the subject here is apologetics in the Bible. just like to show you a few scripture references. And we're going to begin with the book of Proverbs. All right, can you get that up there? Yeah, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 26 is uh, an interesting passage of scripture about, about, uh, about apologetics. Proverbs chapter 26. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
Okay, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. You're going to kind of chuckle at these two verses because they're in juxtaposition with each other. And it almost sounds like a contradiction, but I'll try to help understand the contradiction, the apparent contradiction. 26, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Notice the word answer. That's our a word for apologetics. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. But now look at verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or, or he will be wise in his own eyes. That sounds like an apparent contradiction, doesn't it? One verse says, don't answer a fool, and the next verse says, answer a fool. Well, I think that the Proverbs writer is just being realistic here. There are times when you should enter into a debate with an unbeliever, and there are times when you need to sort of keep your distance. If you get into a debate with a fool, the Bible is not reluctant to use the word fool, because some people in the world are fools when it comes down to it. The things they believe, the way they live, are foolish. So if you would enter into a debate with a fool on his own territory without coming to him with a firm grasp of your own biblical understanding, you're going to just, it says, uh, you'll be like him yourself. He'll bring you down. Have you ever had the conversation like that? When you've gotten into a debate with a person who was not going to listen to you anyway, and you, it just ended up being an argument. And so we're going to take that verse very uh, seriously in this class, and, and we don't want to enter into a debate that's just going to deteriorate into an argument. But notice verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Come on now, give him an answer. Answer his questions as best you can. And share the Christian worldview with him, or the result, if you don't, he'll be wise in his own eyes. So I think the wisdom here, uh, this is the book of wisdom, by the way, the book of Proverbs. It's wisdom sometimes to keep your distance. It's wisdom sometimes to enter into an apologetic with somebody. And it takes a lot of discernment to tell the difference. Okay, Let's, let's go on and look secondly at Paul. I want to take a few minutes here. And by the way, this is just going to be a little bit of a lecture, but then we're going to, I'm going to ask you to do something there at your table. So if you want to turn with me now to the book of Acts, I want to show you some stuff about the, the Apostle Paul, who, uh, who was a terrific apologist. What, what would be the word there? Apologist. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say an apologetician, and I, I just knew that wasn't right. Paul was a great apologist, and here he is in the city of Athens, where there were just tons and tons of different religious ideas floating around. And Paul, being a faithful missionary, didn't want to uh, let the opportunity slip by. He wanted to answer a fool according to his folly, so that he wouldn't be wise in his own eyes. So he took the opportunity, and uh, we're in Acts chapter 17, and look at verse 16. I want to read this extended passage to you. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. See, they came from a polytheistic worldview. Many gods. We're going to look at that in a little while this morning. So, it says in verse 17, He reasoned in the synagogue. In other words, he did apologetics. He answered these fools. He reasoned with them in the synagogue, with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, 
What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So it says that in verse 19, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So picture Paul's opportunity. Have you ever had someone come up to you and ask you, tell me about Jesus Christ? I mean, that's like a golden opportunity. And that's what happened to Paul. So it says in verse 22 that he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, quote, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And then he begins his apologetic. The, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, blah, blah, blah. He goes on and on. I'm not going to take the rest of the time to read that. But you ought to read the rest of that chapter and see how Paul very pointedly and boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he is doing apologetics. Um, there are a couple other situations. Look, for example, a few pages over in the book of Acts, chapter 22. Acts 22, verse 1 Paul is now in Jerusalem, and he is really getting the heat because these crowds of people around him are, are thinking about arresting him. And, in fact, that's what they end up doing. But I just want to show you one verse here. Acts 22, verse 1 says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. If you have a Bible, you might want to underline or notice that word defense it is the same word we're talking about today, apologia, apologia. It's the Greek word for apologetics or defense or giving an answer. Now, a couple other verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 3. I'm, I'm not going to read them. You can look at them up there on the screen. 1 Corinthians 9, 3, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Actually, I do want to look at that one. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10, 5. This is kind of a, a cool verse, very interesting verse here, 2 Corinthians 10.5 shows you that sometimes when we do apologetics, we go on the offensive. So far, we've been talking about giving a defense um, like the Super Bowl, you know, today is going to have to be a good mixture of defense and offense. The team that does the best at one or both of those is probably going to win, right? And the same is true in apologetics. Sometimes you go on the defense and you offer answers to people when they question you. But at times, you've got to take more of an offensive mode and actually go on the attack. You know, there's nothing wrong with Christians attacking non-Christian worldviews under certain parameters, obviously. The mode, the, the mood that you're in, the manner of speaking, and so on. But 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this. It says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's a great verse. It might even merit being a theme verse for this class. We demolish 
every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. How, just ask yourself right now, how confident are you that you could do that? i got to be honest with you. Actually, this is one of my weakest areas. I am not a philosopher. I'm not a, an arguer. I'm a huge diplomat. I think I've got the gift of seeing the good in everything. And that can get me in trouble sometimes because it makes it hard for me to go against error and to actually confront. I'm not a confronter. How many of you feel that way? Are you a confronter? Probably not. I, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming most of the people in here, we're Presbyterians, we're not Baptists. That means we, we tend to be a little bit a little bit reticent. What's that, Tom? <laughs> Is that how you are? <laughs> um, we tend to be a little reticent. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of growth to do in this area. So that's why I'm teaching this class, because I want to begin to become a better apologist. And then in Philippians 1, 7, and 16, there's also the same use of the word for defense or um, apologetics. All right, so far, here's what we've said. That in the Bible... The book of Proverbs talks about answering people under certain circumstances. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, we see him practicing good apologetics. Now, let's go a little bit further. And I want to say that in the Bible, we're still talking about apologetics in the Bible. In the Bible, there are tons and tons of examples of people who ask questions of God. There are questions and there are questioners. Is that coming up? There we go. There are questions and there are questioners in the Bible. And here are just a few examples. There's Abraham, for instance. Abraham asked God one day, God, what can you give me? Because I remain childless. And the only son I have is Eleazar of Damascus. He's not my, mine and Sarah's child, like you've promised. So Abraham is an example of a guy who asked God questions. Moses is another one. Moses is standing there in front of the burning bush. And he says, God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites, Israelites up out of Egypt? Moses felt free to ask God questions. Another example is David. I draw great comfort from many of the Psalms in which there are questions that David asks of God. For instance, in one Psalm he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? In another psalm, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? And then when you think of somebody in the Bible who asks God questions, don't you think of Job? Job is sort of the first guy that comes to my mind. And Job asked God lots of questions. In the book of Job, one question he asked God was, Why do the wicked live on growing old and increasing in power? That's an honest question. God, why is it that the bad people, you know, manage well and the good people seem to suffer so much? That's sort of one of the basic questions behind the book of Job. He also asked God, how can a mortal be righteous before God? So Job is an example. And then finally, another example of a man that maybe you've not heard of before is a guy by the name of Habakkuk. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he asked God lots of questions like, God, why do you tolerate the treacherous? God, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And he asked God, how long, O Lord, must I call to you for help, but you do not listen? Sound a lot like David. Well, 
that's an example, just a sampling of people, and there are others in the Bible. But I'm using that to say that it's all right to ask questions. It's good for people to ask us about Christianity. We should not be shutting them down. We should be commending them for asking the questions. And you and I need to ask questions too. We, we must not be unthinking Christians. We must not be uncritical thinkers. But rather, we should be the best thinkers there are because we've asked the hard questions and we've submitted to what God has said. All right, speaking of questions, here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to take a break from my talking for a few minutes, and I'd like to ask you to do something there at your table. I want to ask you to think of some questions that people are commonly asking today. It can be questions about God. It can be questions about the Bible, Christianity in general, religion in general. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, make a list. I've given every table a little legal, a legal pad. And somebody at the table needs to be the secretary. And I just want you to brainstorm and come up with a list of three, five, ten. Doesn't matter how many ever questions you want to ask. Um, and and here's my, here's why. I've, I've got a logic to this. You're going to turn these questions into me, and I'm going to use your questions as part of our lesson plan from week to week for the next six to eight weeks. And we're going to see how many of the questions that you have and that other people have, we can try to uh, come up with some biblical answers or some biblical approaches to that, okay? So I'm going to ask you to take about uh, two minutes. It won't take you long. Come up with a list of questions and write them down. Then I've got something else for you to do after that, so hold on. Next up uh, on your paper, I'd like you to rank them. Put them in order of importance to your group. How you do that is up to you, but try your best to say, yeah, yeah this is our number one question, this is number two, etc. All right, go for it. Okay, I see a lot of tables that appear to be ready, so I'm going to go ahead and call time. And um, out of curiosity... I'd like to uh, go table by table and hear what was your number one question on your list. Okay, let's start with hammocks back there. All right, did, did you hear that one? Is that one yours? If God is loving, why do bad things happen to good people? Great question. People struggle with it from time immemorial. We'll, uh, we'll solve that question in this class, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll write a book. We'll call it uh, The Answer to the Most Basic Human Question by Explore of UPC. All right. How about the next table? Number one question was? Yeah. Outstanding. What happens to people after they die who are not believers in Christ? Important. Very important question. These guys right here? How can God expect people to know which religion is the truth? Terrific. That's great. It's important. Yes, uh, Copenhagen's and same vein. 
Wow. Wow, I, that's good. That's your number one question. That's great. Why Why go to church? Excellent. Okay. Brill hearts and Amdahls. How do we know the Bible is true and not just a document man has come up with? That's very important. In fact, we're going to do that next week. Because I, I knew that that would be one of them, our source of authority, so on. And we've got to start there and build our apologetic from that. So thank you for bringing that up. This table right here. Great. Why is it true and applicable to all areas? Great. Okay. What about you guys? Okay. (laughs) Number three. Excellent. Are science and faith really compatible? Let me give you some pretty exciting news about that one. I, I figured that the whole question of science, creation versus evolution would be coming up in here. And on Sunday, March the 12th, we have a special speaker already lined up to deal with that. His name is Hugh Ross. Hugh is a very well-known in some circles uh, scientist, Christian scientist, not the religion, Christian science, but a, a scientist who is a Christian. How's that? He's going to be here in this room, not on video, in the flesh. So Hugh Ross. Yeah. Awesome. I didn't do it. Um, So anyway, he'll be the expert on that one. Next table. Ooh, excellent. If I'm happy now, why change? I assume you're talking about why adopt a religious view if I'm happy with the one I've got. Something like that. With irreligion. Lifestyle, great. Okay. Back table, Tricia and Robinsons. Okay. (laughs) I want to know that. (laughs) I mean, that's really practical right there. That's where we live. That's where we live and move and have our being. Okay, great. We'll try to put that one on the list. All right. Let me just ask, any any different questions from the ones that we've heard so far? Terrific. Yes. Somewhat related to the first group, but somewhat different too. Why does God allow disaster? Terrific question. Do you have a different one? Back table. No? All the same have been taken? How about uh, Brian and those? Oh, good question. How can we know God's will? I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure we're going to hit that one in this class. Uh, But maybe. I mean, if it's on your paper, I'll figure out a way to at least get the periphery, okay? What about this table? A different one? Oh, yeah. Good question. That is really good. Very key right there. Don't all paths lead to God. If I'm sincere, if I'm good... Won't I get to heaven? Okay. And uh, how about any of the guys along the side there? Anything besides what we've heard? Keith? Right. Say it again, Keith. 
if if God loves us, yeah, why did he only give us one way? That seems like, does that seem exclusive? Yes, it is, and it is. Um, it, but is it contrary to love? That's the issue. So we'll deal with that. Very good. All right, here's just what I'd like you to do is uh, leave those on your table, and I'll collect them later. And uh, I will definitely consider them all. But the constraints of the class will mean that we obviously won't get everyone. The food issue, I'm not sure about that one. I know, that's... <laughs> okay. Hey, as long as we're on the issue of filling things out, there is also on every table a an enlistment form. You know I would get to this eventually. We're just uh, needing a, a little bit of uh, reinforcements. You know how in a football game the first string gets tired, the second string gets tired? you got to have some third stringers on there. Well, nobody's a third stringer, but maybe you haven't had an opportunity yet to play the game. Uh, we just need a fresh round of recruits. We've had some people who are doing it a lot, and uh, we would just like to add to the number. If we've got a lot of numbers of people doing this, it, it doesn't take a lot of work. Um, we need somebody, for instance, just to stop by Panera and bring the food in every so often, like maybe once a month or every six weeks or something like that, or somebody to make coffee or someone to help clean up afterwards. So if you're interested in that and you're not on the list already, put your name and if you have an email address, put that on there and we'll contact you. All right, enough of that. Those are great questions. Now let's move on. I want to go ahead and to the next slide, if you will, uh, Brent. And I want to begin now talking about eight principles of apologetics. And these are going to undergird our discussions for the next six to eight weeks. You've got a space where you can write these in on your sheet there. Take it home with you and think about it. I want to just go through these with you fairly quickly. Eight principles that are going to guide how we do apologetics. The first principle is truth exists. And not only does truth exist, it is knowable. See, you're right there already. We have said something that is totally radical in some circles. Truth exists, and it is knowable. Do you remember the story in the Bible when Jesus was before Pilate? I think it was Pilate, wasn't it? And Pilate said to Jesus, Jesus had just talked about truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. And when Pilate heard the word truth, Something didn't add up in his culture, and he said, what is truth? What do you suppose that, the very question, what did it reveal about him? What is truth? What did it reveal about him? What did it reveal about his culture? Anyone? Anybody over here? John? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it reveals that a lot of people in his day, maybe he himself, thought that truth is relative. It changes with the times. Mark addressed that very issue in his sermon today when it comes to the subject of husbands and wives. Was Paul the apostle writing stuff that just appealed to his culture and now it's old hat? Well, those are questions with which we have to wrestle as we do biblical interpretation. But here at the outset, I'm kind of going out on a limb and I'm saying there is such a thing as truth. It exists. And furthermore, you can know it. Secondly, a truth 
is always true. Now, here's what I mean by that. A truth is still a truth, even if a person doesn't believe it is true. Even if a person doesn't know whether it is true. Or even if God has chosen not to reveal that it is true, it is still true. Do you follow that point? And this is so important because a lot of times when you're talking with someone who differs from your own point of view, you might hear that famous line, what is it? What am I thinking of? That's right, exactly. It might be true for you, and I, I applaud you, brother, if it's true for you, but it's not true for me. And, and, and it's to that person that we have to be able and willing to say that this is true even if you don't believe it's true. Even if you don't know it's true, and even if God has chosen, for whatever reason, not to reveal whether it's true or not, it is still true. So that's very important. Number three, here's another one that often you will be, um, you will be confronted on this one. You'll be talking to somebody, and uh, they will say something like this. You'll be talking to them about God. And they'll say, well, that's just a matter of faith. It's just like a blind leap in the dark. Um, But then they'll say, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I'm going to right now not believe the way you believe. And the implied assumption behind that statement is that faith is somehow contrary to reason. That it's in a whole different category. But the truth of the matter is, faith and reason go hand in hand. And I'll say this even further, Christianity is a reasonable faith. The stuff you and I believe is not stupid. It is not crazy. Some of the smartest people all down through history have been Christians. It's just that we're living in a particular day and time and place in which Christianity is mocked as a religion of foolish people. You see it taken... Uh, You see it insulted in every TV sitcom wherever religion comes up. Uh, You see it in uh, cartoons such as The Simpsons where the religious people are the stupid people, right? And and they are very funny. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is they're still considered foolish. And reasonable people are not people of faith. That's kind of the, the, the clue of our culture today. But really, faith and reason goes hand in hand. Your very, re- your very ability to reason, in fact, is proof of the image of God in you. God is a God who thinks, who reasons, and He's imparted the ability to reason to His people, us human beings. In fact, if you go back into the history of theology, back in the Reformation period, which was in the 1500s, one of the things that the Reformers were known for was their teaching about faith. They taught that faith consists of three things. One is facts. You have to have facts to have faith. Two, you must assent to the truth of those facts. And three, the reformer said you must then trust those facts, especially the fact of Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you just followed that, but our theological ancestors taught that faith and reason go hand in hand. You can't have faith without reason. You can't have faith without facts. 
And the Bible and our faith are built upon solid historical facts and evidence. So don't buy that line that says that, okay, reason can take me this far and faith is a blind leap in the dark that could contradict reason. That's, that's not true at all. By the way, please feel free uh, to stop and ask questions or chime in with comments. Okay, that's three. Number four. I want to definitely develop this one a little bit because this is uh, very, very important. Everybody out there has a worldview. Everybody you talk to has a worldview. What is a worldview? Could someone define that for us? What's a worldview? We talk about that a lot here at UPC. Bruce? That's a great definition. That is a great definition. It is a set of presuppositions or a set of assumptions that you work with to look at things that happen to you in life, to interpret events in life, to enable yourself to live every day as a sane human being. You have a worldview. And every morning you wake up, that worldview uh, kicks into gear. And then you go about your day. You listen to the radio. Everything you hear is taken in through the lens of your worldview, and you analyze it, whether you're knowing it or not, you analyze it according to your set of assumptions about reality, and then you act it out accordingly. Um, so that's what a worldview has is, and everybody has one. They may say they don't, but they do. Even the atheist has a worldview, and it has something to do about God. Even the agnostic who says, I don't know if you can know God, that is a worldview through which he interprets reality. The key question is this. When we're talking about apologetics, here's the, here's the question. This is why number four is so very, very important. The key question as we talk to our friends about our faith is this. We say to them, how well does your worldview explain reality and help you live? How well does your worldview work? How well does it line up with the facts that we see about life around us? How well does it hold up to analysis? How well does it answer the key questions of life? See, that's what we do when we do apologetics. We hopefully aren't just talking at somebody. And you're going to notice in this class a, a little different approach to apologetics than maybe what you've seen before. We're going to spend a lot of our time learning what questions to ask people. Instead of being the people with all the answers, like if I could, let me give you a little testimony about why I have always been a little reluctant about apologetics. I somewhere along the way got taught that apologetics is learning answers to any question that you get asked and you memorizing them. And you have to memorize what Mormons believe and memorize what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and memorize what atheists believe and so on and so forth. And that's a lot of stuff to memorize, and I, I'm just not gifted in that area. So I somehow got taught that you have to memorize what they believe and then memorize answers so that when they ask you, you've got question, um, answers for their questions. But the approach we're going to take is that we're going to be the best question askers there are. In order to help people find out what their worldview is, and if only they can see that their worldview doesn't work, 
that it doesn't line up with reality, that it doesn't answer the key questions of life. It's when we can help them find that out for themselves that we've got them in the palm of our hand. Or better, God has them in the palm of His hand and He's just using us. So this is why number four is so important that you and I get a hold of. Here are some of the main worldviews out there. Uh, There is, for instance, theism. You and I operate out of that worldview. I don't know if you were aware of that, but you are a theist. You and I are theists if we're Christians. That means that we believe that there is an infinite personal God who created everything and who maintains everything and who is involved with everyone and everything. That's a theistic worldview. And uh, guess what? Not everybody in the world agrees with you. <laughs> Your next-door neighbor probably does n- is not a theist. I'm just guessing. But uh, he's probably, he or she or they are probably not theists. There's deism. Deism, D-E-I-S-M. That's a different worldview from the theistic worldview. Um, a lot of our American founding fathers were deists. And a deist believes that there is a God, but that after he created everything, he stepped away from it and he is not involved on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. There are deists out there. They, they say to you they believe in a God, but as to having a relationship with his creatures, that's not what they believe. That's deism. What about atheism? Atheism. You remember you learned in school that the, the prefix... A or ah at the beginning of the word means not, not theists. That's what an atheist is. He is not a theist. He believes there is no God. Uh, there's the worldview of pantheism. Anybody know what is pantheism? Fran? Um, not exactly. Pantheism, man, God is in everything. Yeah, in a way it's kind of like many gods, but... Pantheism is the universe itself is God. God is not a personal being. He is he he sort of melts into the creation. He's he's everywhere. Uh, I think my brother is a pantheist. Stuff he tells me indicates to me that he's a pantheist. Um, Eastern religions are built on the worldview of pantheism. God is in all, and all is in God. That kind of thing. Now, polytheism is Fran's definition. There are many gods. Are there any polytheists in the world today? Yeah? Lou, you think so? Uh-huh. Hindus? Okay. Uh, what do you think, Dave? Larry, I mean? Mormons. Interesting. That's an interesting take on Mormonism. Um, Reza? No kidding. Interesting, because of the Trinity. Did you guys hear that? Um, Reza comes out of a Jewish background, and, and I've never understood that. I, that's interesting. Uh, that Christians are polytheists for believing in one God in three persons. And, by the way, nobody did anybody put the question of the Trinity on your sheet earlier? No one voiced it. Well, we're going to hopefully deal with that, too, if... That's on my sheet, and I get to be the teacher, so. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, But look, there are a lot of Americans who are polytheists because success is a God, beauty is a God, Oprah is a God, 
Dr. Phil is a god. Um, any source of authority out there is a god. It's my god. It's who I follow. So there are lots of polytheists. Agnosticism is a worldview. What does an agnostic say? An agnostic says we cannot know and we don't know whether God exists because he's unknowable. That's what the agnostic says. He's unknowable. It seems to have originated with a fellow by the name of Immanuel Kant. Back in the 18th century, he was a philosopher who said reality exists, but we cannot know it. So that seems to be the history of the agnostic worldview. We cannot know or we don't know God. Now, look, in its best form, in its best face, agnosticism is what we really would call the seekers among us. Because a lot of the seekers among us who are really asking good questions about Christianity are wondering, can I know this God that you talk about? Is he really knowable? See, if he's not convinced of that, if he's thinking or struggling to think that God is unknowable, then the skeptics and seekers are like agnostics. And those were the people that Paul was talking to in Athens in Acts 17. They said they wrote this thing, this inscription, to an unknown God. They were agnostics. They weren't just slamming the door on the faith. faith. They weren't saying there is no God. And so Paul stepped in and began to tell them about the God that they could know. Well, that's all of this about the worldview. I want to go on now. Let's finish up. Number five, what is the goal in doing uh, apologetics? It is not to win a debate. It is to win a disciple. And let's keep that in mind as we study this subject. I, I tell you, I'm going to be the worst debater here. But I'm glad that the purpose of apologetics is not so that we can be great debaters. We need to be great disciple makers. And that's why I'm going to emphasize listening to our seeking friends and asking good questions of our skeptical friends instead of lecturing them and telling them why they're wrong. I've had enough of that in my life, and I want to now build an apologetic on the basis of relationship. Number um, six. Let's go to the next slide. There are more principles, and I'm going to finish. Number six, you cannot change people's hearts. So relax when you're doing apologetics. Relax. Breathe easy. Because you can't change their hearts anyway. Whose job is it to change people's minds and hearts? Yeah, the Holy Spirit, really. You know? Yes, Riza. Yeah, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go on. Right. That's a great question. What I'm kind of getting at is the ultimate job, not the proximate job. Yes, it is your job and mine to witness for Christ. That's our job. But as we witness, the change that we're asking for, the change that we're hoping for, is produced not by sheer argumentation or sheer persuasion or sheer logic. Uh, It is produced by the Holy Spirit. That's the point here. It's not a release of responsibility. Don't get me wrong. Number six does not mean, okay, then I'm not going to do anything. Because you could make that mistake with a lot of stuff. I mean, you could say, well, 
it's God's job to do things, so I'm not going to pray either. It's God's job to save people, so I'm not going to evangelize. Um, and then we get back to Bob Copenhaver's question, why have church? You know, If it's all about God doing things, we don't have any responsibility. So definitely it is our job, but you can relax. Why? Why can you relax as you try to speak with skeptical friends? Because God can change them just like he changed you. When, it, when I was a college junior, I was as skeptical a guy as you would find. Um, I had been swallowing hook, line, and sinker the feminism, the liberalism, the philosophies, the New Age, everything that was very popular in the late 60s and early 70s. It's just that I wasn't a druggie and a hippie. But on the inside, I believed all that stuff. And I was as, uh, as rotten to the core in terms of believing that God was everywhere. I was a pantheist. I would write all these songs. You ask Susie. She can remember these days of mine. Um, I would write all these songs down by the lake at my college about how God was in the leaves and God was in the sky and in the clouds and so on like that. And when God got hold of me through my college roommate, it demolished all of my arguments. And it wasn't my roommate. It was the persuasive ability of the Holy Spirit to show me how empty and futile were all of those stupid things that I was thinking and how my worldview didn't help me live. In fact, I wasn't even living according to my worldview. So the Holy Spirit's job to change hearts. Number seven, I want to emphasize this one because it talks about the context in which we do apologetics. The context must be relationship and a vibrant Christian community. Don't think that we as just little bitty individuals can go out and one-on-one convert people if they don't see that we love them and if they don't see that the church is a place where lives are really being changed and where people are authentically in love with each other and with God. If they, if they hear all the great words and arguments that you and I share, and then they look over at the church and they see people fighting and not getting along and gossiping and slandering and living unholy lives, do you think that your argument is going to help them to want to be a Christian? No. The context must be that of relationship. We must really, we must really care for the people to whom we're witnessing. We must engage them in love and respect them enough to do apologetics. That's why I'm going to say that another way to read number seven is that there is more than one way to defend Christianity. What matters is getting to know the person and being able to one-on-one help them understand the faith. And, And they need a relationship with you and they need to see it lived out in the church of Jesus Christ. And finally, and here's a big sigh of relief. Let's all go, ah. Because number eight is, it's okay to say to somebody, I don't know. All those questions you have on your sheet, it's okay to say, you know, I don't know about every reason and every every answer for every question. Why? Because some of what we believe is mystery. And we need to be comfortable with that. When it comes to the Trinity, how can you fully comprehend that there is one being whom we call Yahweh, God, 
I am that I am. And yet he has eternally existed in three persons, each of which is completely separate and distinct, and yet each of which is fully God. How can you comprehend that when Jesus was a baby in Bethlehem, he was also God, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent? That blows my circuits, and yet I believe it's true. Why? Because I believe there there are some things about Christianity that are mystery. And you explain them to the nth degree, and then when you've reached the edge, you just say, wow, you know, I don't know. So, uh, what time is it? We've got a few more minutes. Let me finish with a quick run-through of the next slide. Why is it, why is it important to do what we're going to be doing the next six to eight weeks? Let me, let me review these reasons. Number one, it's a command. We're commanded to do apologetics. It says that in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. It's not an option. And I'm glad you're here today because it says that you want to be faithful. All right, so it's a command. Secondly, why, do we, why is it important to do apologetics? Because ideas have consequences. Ideas shape history. We become what we believe. That is to say that thinking drives life. And so it's important that we first be thinkers and that we go out and help other people think rationally about Christianity. Because if we're going to change the future, and we want to, don't we? Aren't you alarmed at where things are headed right now? Part of the reason why things are so bad today is that people, Christians have not been thinking correctly for the last two or three or four generations. And they've not helped other people to think well either. Because it's ideas that shape history. Thirdly, why is it important? Because Christianity is often misunderstood. People have a lot of wrong ideas about Christianity. And uh, we want to try to help them see Christianity in a better light. Number four, why do we do apologetics? Because there are many false religions out there deceiving people right and left. It's amazing the number of cults that exist in the world today, and I'm not even aware of all of them. Some of you have done a lot more traveling throughout the world as missionaries and so on than I have, and you've, been, you've confronted these. So because there are many of these false religions, we want to be able to do apologetics and do it well. Number five, why do we want to do it? Because truth is now considered relative. Uh, we had reason to say that earlier today. Truth is now considered relative, just like Pilate said, what is truth? Here are a couple of uh, statistics that you've probably heard before. 64% of adults say that moral truth depends on the situation that you're in. 64, that's more than half. But guess what? 83% of teenagers say that. Almost every teenager, 83%, says moral truth depends on the situation that you are in. So that's a good reason to do apologetics. Number, what is it, five, six, whatever. I can't number these things. Uh, (laughs) Because the impact apologetics can have on the next generation. That's why we want to do apologetics. Because of its impact on the next generation. I was stunned when I heard this statistic. 80% of evangelical kids turn their back on the faith while they're in college. 
80%, 8 out of 10, our sons and daughters would be considered these evangelicals. Will 8 out of 10 of our teenagers, when they go off to college, turn their back on Christianity? And think of how, because many of you did this, think of how hard it is to recover from that. The things that you that that we did in college, we're still paying for some of us. And you know, God forbid that eight out of our, ten of our own kids would have to suffer that. Why is that happening? Part of it is we've not done apologetics very well. We've not helped them to defend the faith very well. That's what we want to do in this class. And finally, why do we want to do it? Because people's eternity is at stake. Do you know that people go to hell because they don't believe the truth? People go to hell because they uh, accept and adopt false worldviews. And they will be there forever. So, my goodness, what more important thing could we be doing than apologetics? I am a huge fan of James Taylor. James Taylor is a, a guy, you know, a little older than me, who still plays music, still plays his guitar. But poor guy... He is such a lost person. <laughs> I've always thought James Taylor would make the perfect Christian because he's been down in the dumps for so long. I, I, I looked at some of the lyrics of his songs. Here's one of them. It was a song called There We Are. And here's what James Taylor says. Drifting through time and space on the face of a little blue ball falling around the sun. One in a million billion twinkling lights shining out for no one in the middle of the night. Here we are. Sparks in the darkness, speaking of our love burning down forever and ever. What worldview is that? How does that help him live every day? All we are is a spark in the darkness. All we are is some little bitty speck on the face of a little blue ball falling around the sun. Well, you know, a lot of the people around whom we live and work believe just the same thing. They just couldn't put it that poetically. So in this class, I hope that God will give us a vision for loving the James Taylors around us and for being confident enough with our faith that we could supply some answers but do it in a courteous, respectful, and loving way. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. And I'm inviting you to join me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be your children to have this Bible full of truth, full of the person of Christ. And yet, Lord, like we've written down on these sheets of paper, we all have a lot of questions, and so do our compadres out there in the world. Uh, Father, thank you that you're a God who is comfortable with questions, that you do not shut us down when we ask them. Sometimes they're mysteries and we don't know the answers, but, Father, we thank you for truth, for the fact that it's always true even if we don't believe it, even if we don't understand it. And so, Father, give us, please, today a vision for gaining as much mastery of the truth as we can and as much compassion for those with whom we differ as possible. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.